Hey, Table Church. That was pretty good. It's nice to see you all. Um, so as Pastor Josh just said, we are in our second week of Advent for this season, uh, which is crazy because when I think about this year, I swear the last thing I remember was the shutdown, and now we're here. Um, I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> Anyways, second week of Advent. Uh, this is a very special time for the church. Uh, this Advent season is the, the season in which cri- the Christian church uh, retells the story of the coming of Christ. Uh, in Isaiah 7.14, we see that the coming Savior of the world would be called Emmanuel, or God with us. And this Savior's name, Emmanuel, would be a sign of deliverance to the people of Israel and a promise to God's people that God is with us and for us. This prophecy from Isaiah would be fulfilled 740 years after it was told. So generations of people waited for this prophecy to come, waited for Emmanuel to come. And we know that it came through Mary, who would give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, who then walked this world to literally be with us. And throughout this series, we've been exploring how God is with us in all seasons. So last week, Pastor Ramon talked about how God is with us in disbelief. Uh, We're going to talk about how God is with us in confusion, in celebration, in rejection, and in waiting. The Advent story is rich with mystery, excitement, drama, and really weird and wild moments like this one up here. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Cloths, same thing. Um, Clothes. Um, Anyways, we read this and we know this story so well that we read this and we don't think it's bizarre. But shepherds were just hanging out in a field, never seen an angel before. This is, the only, this is the second time in all of scripture that a host of angels came to greet somebody. And we just read it as it's, okay, fine, whatever, this is normal. And as I was writing this sermon, I remembered uh, a wedding that I officiated back in October. And it wasn't my first wedding, but I remember writing the script for that wedding and... <laughs> As I, was, as I was writing, I stopped, and in my head I was like, oh my God, this is wild. Two people are just committing their love and life to each other, and everyone is just, yeah, this is a normal happening. This is everyday normal happening. No more having total control of the covers in the bed or being able to hit snooze seven-ish times in the morning like I do. I, I realize I'm not married, um, but all of my fears of getting married have to do with my sleep, so (laughs) perhaps I'll need some counsel from some wise married couples um, in the future. But it, it is, it's just this amazing thing that we're coming to watch. And we all show up and we're like, yep, this is normal, and also please don't go over 30 minutes because we're really excited for cocktail hour, right? There's so much beauty in the tradition of wedding ceremonies, so much. There's something incredible about reciting the same promises that generations of your family and generations of the world's family have recited before you. And as a guest, being able to be a part of something that is so sacred 
but also somehow so accessible is wild. But what I found is that we see it as normal and sometimes mundane because with tradition, one often loses wonder. And when we lose wonder, instead of experiencing something, we just move through something, often robotically, without even realizing what just happened. And there's also something very beautiful about the fact that people around the world know the story of the birth of Jesus. The people who don't even identify as Christians can still recount in detail how Christ came into the world. And that scripture even made its way into the Charlie Brown Christmas special. (laughs) Verbatim. But just as we move through traditional experiences like weddings uh, without deeply connecting to what we're witnessing, I think that we think we know the story of Jesus' birth so well that when we reread it and recount it, we do it as if it was a recipe instead of a love story. So today, we're going to talk about why we absolutely cannot afford to lose our wonder with this story or with the people that God chose to be a part of it. So please join me in prayer before we get started. Holy God, we thank you for this space. I thank you for every person who walked in here tonight. You know their stories. If I don't, Lord, you know what's on their heart. You know what they came here heavy with this evening. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you fill this room. You fill it with your presence. You fill it with your promises. You fill it with your hope. Sit with everyone tonight as we hear your word, as we hear your love for us, and let it sink deep into us so that we leave here changed. This is your stage, Lord. Do what you want. Amen. So the story of Jesus coming into the world is really told in Luke, very, very much in detail. And for those of you who are unaware, um, Jesus came into the world through Mary and through Joseph. And it was a very hectic time when Jesus was born because all of a sudden there needed to be a census uh, of the town. And so everyone had to go back to where they were from, from to be counted. And so Mary's very pregnant and they go back to be counted in the census. And so we pick it up where he, Joseph, went to register for the census with Mary. So Luke 2.5 says, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, this was not planned, clearly, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Incredible. It's an incredible story. And we read it like it's normal because it's very familiar to us. But here's the thing. There's this odd thing about shepherds. And I think we read this as Christians in almost 2020 uh, and think absolutely nothing of it. And that's probably, that probably has a lot to do with the most famous shepherd of all time, who is, of course, that wasn't loud enough. Thank you. <laughs> Jesus. Some of y'all need to go to church more. Um, <laughs> Jesus calls himself our shepherd. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 10, 27, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And when Jesus is telling his disciples that he has to go and they are now in charge, he looks at Peter and says, feed my lambs and tend to my sheep. And arguably the most famous psalm we have, Psalm 23, starts with King David, a former shepherd boy himself, saying, the Lord is my shepherd. It's all over scripture. And so from our vantage point, the use of shepherds in this story seems like a normal thing to do. We see shepherds through the beautiful lens of Jesus. But for those hearing this story for the first time during the life of Jesus, this would sound bananas to them. The use of shepherds to bring about the birth of the savior of the world? Absolutely not. Those cute figurines we all have in our nativity scenes were actually known for this. They were outcasts in society. They were unclean because they slept in the fields with the animals so they could not adhere to the religious laws such as hand washing. No one trusted them. They wouldn't do business with them. They were thieves, thieves from each other, so they would steal each other's livestock, um, maybe just thieves in general. They were people who used foul and just generally uneducated language. They were poor and often homeless. And since they slept in the fields, they didn't get to attend the temple or really any of the religious happenings. So they were completely outcast from the traditional society. They're not even named in this story, and yet God wanted them to know the good news first. Just like years later when Jesus, during his ministry and then death, is raised from the dead, he chose to tell the good news first to a woman. Because time and time again, the people the world rejects are the people that God starts with. The Lord has a history of choosing people the world rejects. God didn't just choose the shepherds and Mary as the lowly people for his work, these two, and then everyone else is very nice and proper. This move was very on brand for the Lord. For instance, John the Baptist was rejected by society. Rahab was rejected in general because she was a prostitute. Tamar was rejected by her husband. Leah was also rejected by her husband. David, that shepherd boy who would then become king, was rejected by his entire family. And Jesus, of course, was rejected by the entire world. And majority of the people that I just read were a part of the lineage of Jesus. That's who Jesus came from, a bunch of rejected people. And what I love about the Bible is that it tells the story of real people trying to figure out what a life of faith looks like. So when we paint shepherds in this angelic and perfect uh, nativity scene manner, we're not doing the real story justice at all. And when we do that, we are tacitly agreeing with the point that they needed to be clean before they entered the presence of the Lord. And whether we realize it or not, if we believe it about them, we believe it about ourselves as well. 
So I take joy in hoping that the shepherds showed up super dirty, hopefully covered in tattoos, cursing at each other until the moment they met Jesus because somebody didn't follow the right directions and got them lost. And all of them most likely have a pack of smokes or two in their pocket. That's how I hope they showed up. Because if they can show up like that to Jesus, then I can too. You see, if we just read this part of the story for face value, we assume that the shepherds were chosen simply because they were nomadic people and God needed messengers. But when we look at the story from the perspective of wonder, we see that the shepherds were specific, not convenient choices. That our Christ was telling us from the beginning of his time on earth that he was the Lamb of God. That our Christ was telling us who is welcome at his throne and who is first in his kingdom. And who better to share the news of the birth of the Lamb of God than shepherds? The shepherds' lives of rejection placed them in exactly the right place to witness the miracle of miracles. So if you are feeling rejected, know, know that God sees you. They responded to the call of the Lord, and because of that, their lives were forever changed. But this situation could have happened differently. The shepherds could have missed the call, and their lives would have remained the same out in the field until they died. And as I place myself in the perspective of the shepherds, I wonder if I would have responded the same way that they did. Because God calls us, but we don't have to go. After a lifetime of being rejected by society, or being rejected by circumstance, or worse, being rejected by self, the call for something new must have felt very questionable for them. Patterns of rejection aren't really known to breed hope. (laughs) And when we say rejection... The, the word, re- we all know what it feels like, but the word rejection feels painful, even saying it, because we can ex- remember the experiences that we've had. And its roots come from the, the Latin phrase to throw back. And that's a perfect way of describing it, right? To throw back. And when we are on the receiving side of rejection, we can physically feel that throwback, can't we? <laughs> Rejection feels painful to us because it actually is painful to our bodies. Uh, Apparently, MRI studies (laughs) illustrate that the way we experience rejection, the the same areas of our brain become activated as when we feel physical pain, even if we weren't touched. Our body is responding to that. And our bodies, because they are so, so sweet and designed so wonderfully uh, with these horrible sins of the world uh, in mind, Uh, we, our bodies, when we experience rejection, our body will send us more opioids to try to help the situation. But it doesn't ever feel like enough, does it? We need more drugs. Because we can't control what other people think about us. And there are always going to be people throughout our lives who simply are not going to value us. They're going to throw us back. They're going to reject us. That's just going to happen. And what happens when we face that rejection? We retreat. We wall up. We make an earnest but very short-sighted attempt to protect what's left of our little hearts. And from my experience, there are two types of rejection. There's situational rejection, And this happens all the time because life isn't perfect. 
We feel rejected from job opportunities, educational opportunities, relationship opportunities. And although this is a very super duper natural part of life, the concept of rejection still makes us want to hide in a hole. Even the smallest hints at rejection hurt us. For instance, at my other job, uh, I work in compliance and we have a system where we're trying to correct a lot of errors. And so I ask people for documentation and to meet these errors, to fix them. And sometimes I put them into a system for review and it comes back with giant words that say rejected. Now, I realize throughout the years that when I go back to these offices and say, hey, so this was rejected, they panic. They absolutely panic thinking that they have done something so wrong. So I've learned over the years that that word doesn't need to come to their office anymore. So what I do is I go back and say, hey, they need just a few more pieces of documentation. Does that work? And they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, I could do that. Instead of, oh my God, are we in trouble? It's, okay, yeah, I can handle that. All it took was me removing that word. That's how much it impacts us for a silly little recommendation. All I had to do was remove it. So when we face these situational moments of rejection all the time, and when we don't recognize them as a natural part of life and move on from them, we absorb them as part of self, and then situational rejection has now become self-rejection. That's what happens when we don't move on from those situations. And self-rejection, it is the rejection that has cataloged all of our situational rejection and then pulls them out with perfect examples to relate to whatever it is that we're trying to do next, to remind us why we shouldn't try again. Because you remember what happened last time, right? And self-rejection is a dangerous fast track to a shame spiral. Oh, you want to try dating again? You remember how bad you were at that last time, right? Don't do it. Oh, you're interested in making new friends, so you're gonna join that, that group? Oh, you remember in fifth grade when you weren't picked for the kickball team? They don't want you in their group. And that you're meanwhile wondering where in the back of your head that's been hiding, and it comes out at the perfect time. Self-rejection forces us to cancel our opportunities way before anyone else has the opportunity to do it or even knows that we have one. And when my self-rejection mode has linked up with my shame spiral, I've destroyed so many potential relationships simply because I didn't feel worthy of them. Because I took what happened in a past relationship and put it on this. Uh, I once cut and ran from a wonderful relationship because due to a past experience, I thought that this new person would not be okay with the fact that I wasn't a virgin. And so before I even had the conversation with this person, I just removed myself from the situation and ran. And years later, as I realized the trail of hurt that I caused from just running from relationships, I went back and met with this person, and turns out it was not even a starter for him. Like, there was nothing there, ever. I just did that. I just ran because that self-rejection absorbed me. Because it happened with one person, it was going to happen with everybody in my head. Theologian and author Henry Nouwen wrote this beautiful book called The Life of the Beloved, and if you haven't read it, please do. It's, it's, you read it and reread it, keep it for life. And there's this 
um, section in it in which he says, self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved contributes to the core truth of our existence. That's what it is. That's who we are. Because true to its meaning, rejection, the throwback, will always throw us back. But we get to decide if we'll be thrown back into the abundance of living waters or if we'll be thrown to the bottom of an empty well. And it's a lot easier to float on living waters than it is to climb out of an empty well. And I know pastors stand on stages across the world every single week. And we always say, God loves the rejected. God sits with the lowly. God sees the ones we miss. We say this all the time. So many of you are thinking, this isn't news, Angela. Well, it may not be news, but it certainly isn't known. I know too many stories. I know too many personal stories of people in this community who just simply don't believe it, who cancel opportunities, who self-reject themselves because it's not going to happen anyway. It didn't happen last time. I'm not going to try. So many reasons why it's easier to reject ourselves before we even give the opportunity for anyone else to reject us. But when faced with rejection, which we will, we avoid turning situational rejection into self-rejection by falling back into abundance instead of emptiness, falling back into those waters. And the love of Christ remains to be the only water that will run dry. And as humans, we try to make the gospel so confusing and the steps to get there so long. But the true gospel is simple. The true gospel really does just tell us to take our dirty, tattooed, foul-mouthed, shepherd-like selves to the feet of Jesus and marvel in his presence for as long as it takes for us to leave changed forever. That's, that's it. That's it right there. That's how easy it is for the good news to be obtained. And you know how we fall back into that abundance instead of an empty well? We do exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. In Matthew 10, 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he leaves and they are on the mission. And he says to them, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. That's what he says. Oh, they don't want you? Cool. Tell them bye and go to the next town. He didn't say go back and tell them why you're worthy. Or you need to build up the courage to face rejection again. Or, wow, if that happens, you must really suck. No. He said, guess what? This is going to happen. And what you're to do, tell them bye and make sure you don't take anything with you. You leave the rejection there. He said, if rejection happens to the Son of God, it happens to everyone. So say bye and get back to business because your identity rests with me and not on the outcome of any single interaction in your life. If our identity is situational, it is not rooted in Christ. So if Jesus says, even if no one else wants you, Jesus is aware of this. He looks at you and says, I still do. Don't you get it? So kick the dust from your feet because rejection is not meant to stay with you and get back to the business of following me. And we know that this is so much easier said than done. Absolutely. So that's why when I think of the shepherds, I think of them as extraordinary people. 
So extraordinary because their entire life they've been rejected by society. Their entire life they've faced situational rejection from religious practices to social engagements to keeping up with standard societal norms. And yet when the opportunity came to be a part of history, they did not discount themselves as unworthy to participate. They did not self-reject. And because they didn't discount themselves, their lives were forever changed. They heard God say move and they followed his voice. What wonders we will miss if we continue to listen to the voice that calls us rejected instead of the one that calls us beloved. Scripture says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Their lives changed forever because of this encounter with Christ. And to me, the best part of their lives changing is that situationally, their lives probably didn't. And from what we know of people who follow Jesus, their lives most likely got worse after this. And it didn't matter, even if it got worse, even if the situational rejection remained forever. The difference now is that they could respond to rejection with abundance and not emptiness. So knowing that we're all going to deal with rejection, um, the experts in the field and also the Bible um, itself would, (laughs) an expert in many things, uh, would zone us in to focusing on a few things. One is to own the rejection. Just own it. Don't ignore it. Acknowledge that it happened. Note it as a moment in time. Learn from it. But don't dwell on it. Note it, file it, push it, and move on. Know that you're not alone. Know that the only way to avoid situational rejection from turning into self-rejection is to fall back into the abundance of Christ's living water. That's the best news I have. That's it. That's the only way to do it. And I think the most important thing when dealing with rejection is to realign and not retaliate. And what I mean by that is every time we're rejected, something inside of us, our ego, wants to respond with, well, I'm going to go back, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to come back and show them. All we're doing then is giving them power over us. And the times in my life when I've done that, I've gotten it, I've gone back, I've done the thing, I realize I didn't actually want that thing. I just wanted to prove them wrong. And I have wasted time. So don't retaliate. People are not going to value us. It's going to happen. That doesn't have anything to do with our actual value. We're going to be rejected from things. We shake the dust of rejection off our feet and we keep going. Realign, not retaliate. You know, we don't know much about these shepherds' lives before the birth of Jesus. We just know that they were in the field. But I have to wonder if, because of their immediate response, if they, if they had this thought, this feeling, that they knew how it ended, and that's why they were ready for the call. And I think if we focus more on the security that we know the end of the story, <laughs> we do, We know that our good shepherd will always be closer than our breath, and ultimately that death has completely lost the battle. I think if we focused on that, our current rejection wouldn't matter as much to us. Certainly help me. So during this season of Advent, I think we're reminded that living living as if we know how it ends is really the only way to truly live. And that the Christ who summoned the rejected shepherd calls us as well. So I'd like to take a moment before we move to the communion table to just pray over us for whatever type of self-rejection that is digging into our being just to be removed.
So please pray with me. Holy God, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for the ways that you speak to us when we don't have words to speak to ourselves. I thank you for the ways that you see us when we want to hide in a corner and we don't want to address the things that are hurting our heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you just sweetly remind us that it's okay to release those things, that it's okay to move past those things, that our identity is not in those things, but in you. I pray that over every single person in this room, Lord, Holy Spirit, sit with us. Don't leave them till it's fixed. I love you so much. Amen.